0: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: Hi, I'm Adam Grant. I think about work a lot. That's why I wanted to tell you about Canva Docs, which will help you expertly craft your work communications. They have an AI text generator built in called MagicWrite, powered by OpenAI. You can generate any text you want, Job descriptions, marketing plans, sales proposals. Just start with a prompt and you'll have a draft in seconds. Tweak your draft and you're done. Try Canva Docs with an AI text generator built in at canva.com. Designed for work.
0: You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack.
1: Welcome back to Rethinking, my podcast on the science of what makes us tick. I'm an organizational psychologist, and I'm taking you inside the minds of fascinating people to explore new thoughts and new ways of thinking. My guest today is Kaya Kalas. She's the Prime Minister of Estonia, the first woman ever to hold the role. Previously, she was a member of European Parliament and a partner in a law firm. She's gained international recognition for her strong stance against Russian aggression. And she's also one of the wisest, most unscripted leaders I've ever met, inside or outside politics. Uh, What should I call you during the conversation? Prime Minister?
3: Uh, you can call me Kaya as well, uh, because we know personally. I mean, uh, we are very equal society, so so you can call me by my first name. I I don't need any titles.
1: That's very egalitarian of you.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, this is w- 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 I mean w- how we function here. But if it is for you, I mean, what is more convenient?
1: Well, I'm I'm happy to do whatever you consider comfortable mm-hmm. and respectful.
3: Yeah because I think the topic is uh, is not uh, is on one side also the the work but it's more like the leadership issues so so it's it's okay if you if you call me by my first name.
1: All right. Well, I appreciate that and if you want to restate anything or clarify anything, we can do multiple takes.
3: No, it's, uh, it's better when we do it uh, spontaneously as it comes.
1: <laughs> Normally, uh, I feel like most of the, the political leaders I've interviewed over the years have been very scripted and very on message. And I love your candor. So this, okay. will, be, this will be exciting for me.
3: Uh, politicians are not actors. If you are not sincere, uh, then people will know eventually. It will come out if you play somebody else. Uh, so it's uh, you know, much easier to be yourself all the time.
1: <laughs> That's so true. And I guess the caveat on that is not everybody's self is equally likable or respectable. So <laughs> you, have the, you have the good fortune of aligning your authenticity with what other people admire. Uh, and I think. Oh,
3: thank you. That's very nice.
1: It's really been amazing to watch your leadership, particularly over the past year. I think it's it's been one courageous, but two also instructive, on what it looks like to to stand up to a tyrant and a bully. And that's part of what I want to talk about today. But I thought we'd kick off with a little bit of your personal background, if you're up for it. Absolutely. So I guess for me, one place to start is I know that Estonia has one of the world's best education systems. And there are some unusual features of it, like kids don't start official school until age seven. So, what did you do when you were five and six, and what was school like for you as a child?
3: <laughs> we were playing. <laughs> we were kids. That was uh, before the school, but we went to kindergarten. So you also have some kind of uh, teachings there, but the school really starts when you are seven uh, of course I went to school when uh, we were occupied by the Soviet Union and that was much stricter much more related to the you know communism and all the ideology uh, which is aside but the but the education is still uh, still good and of course when we regained our independence we have really boosted our education system and what is maybe interesting about our education system is if you compare this to others, of course, we start uh, very early to mm, make children love science, math, physics. You know, children always try to align with their idols or what, which are the characters that they uh, really like. And and so we created years ago this cartoon of girl dog who was inventor and there are musicals about this and and she's singing about math is good physics is fun chemistry's and and now it just uh, this year when i learned that in terms of female scientists estonia is ranking top in the world and i was just wondering is the result of this that we have built this up from very very small age and and also uh, the computers uh, IT education from the very early start because learning uh, programming is also learning another language uh, and and children take it up very easily but also on the other side we have such some obligatory lessons that uh, the other countries don't have for example music is obligatory and that's why we have the singing or song festivals and everybody knows uh, we have a lot of musicians coming uh, from the education system as well but it is not putting or trying to keep the stress balanced for the kids so that they don't you know burn out and uh, and school is is also fun not only very useful.
1: So what what was your schooling like early? Was there a formative experience that led you to say, I think I might want to run this country one day?
3: Oh, no, absolutely not. It was totally opposite. When I went to university, uh, I thought that I'm I definitely want to be number one in what I do. And therefore, I will not choose uh, a subject or a topic where my uh, father or my mother or my brother is already there and they will compare me to them. So my mother is a doctor. So that was out of the question. Uh, Father is a politician totally absolute no-no. Uh, and my brother is in, in the finances. So, okay, uh, this one is out as well. So what was left was law. And and I went into uh, uh, study law and uh, and I became attorney at law and worked myself up in competition law and energy law.
1: Well, it's, it's interesting because you were not only a partner in a law firm, then you did an MBA. And I remember you worked as an executive coach what did you learn through that experience and what was what was that detour all about?
3: I started very early and this is, of course, related to our country's history because we regained our independence in 1991. So by the time when I went to university, we had to build the country from scratch, everything. So in the Soviet Union, you didn't have any private uh, property. So you didn't have any civil laws. Uh, So everything, uh, laws on, on agreements, everything had to be written from scratch and those who were writing it were the students in the in the law school because they were speaking languages and took all the best practices from all all around the world to write those laws and and so it was also logical that you started to practice very early and It is funny when you look back uh, to that time, but then everything was evolving so fast. And so by the age of 27, I was already a partner in the biggest law firm. And I was like, okay, is this it? Is this uh, for the rest of my life? Because my colleagues, uh, partners in Finnish law firms, for example, they were over 60. They were playing golf all day and I was playing golf with them, but I was like 28. I was like, is that my own life? And then, of course, uh, when you practice law, you see what could be better and you give advice. You are uh, a consultant, uh, but somebody else makes the decisions. You give advice and, and you can see that, oh, this is so wrong decision that this guy is making, but but it's their responsibility, not yours. You just give the advice. So in politics, you are actually making the rules. Uh, so it took me um, some quite some time to still go uh, to politics and it might be that, you know, some are saying that it's in your blood. You can't fight it really, If you, even if you think that I will never go because I don't want to be compared to anybody.
1: Well, it, I think it's fair to say some people would say that you came from Estonia's royal family of politics, right? Your Your father was prime minister. I know your great-grandfather was one of the founders of the original republic and also the first police chief, right? And Yet, it seems like the, the direct influence of that bloodline was, was less about you saying, I want to be a politician, and more channeling a high level of ambition. Like, I'm struck that you, you wanted to be number one. Why? Why was being the best so important to you?
3: Yeah, well, uh, that's actually very interesting. Uh, my brother, at one point, gave me this book. I don't remember the author, but it was uh, now discover your strengths. And there are like 36 different strengths. And and I was reading it and it's like, oh, this is my strength. No, no, this is my strength. But then there's a test as well. So I took the test and and then it turned out that one of my, uh, you know, core strengths is competitiveness. And I was like, I'm not competitive at all. And my brother was like, no, you know, playing board games with you is completely nuts because you always want to win. So I guess uh, you know, you can't fight your nature really.
1: It's hard, hard to fight. And I know the the folks at Gallup and Marcus Buckingham will be excited to know that you took the strengths finder uh, yes. and, and gained some some self self-insight into that. I think that oftentimes when people are competitive, that's about you know not only being at the top but also taking others down but that doesn't strike me as your philosophy at all right i think uh-huh. i think you want to be the best in a way that lifts other people up talk to me about that a little bit
3: yeah absolutely i i mean in politics you see this a lot that uh, you know somebody's not doing that well so he's pulling down the others uh, but you are not uh, uh, somehow appearing taller if you're just pulling down the others you are still uh, small yourself if if you do that or, or not not as tall one of my philosophies is you have to treat everybody with respect not considering what their position is or or what they do uh, because uh, you know there's a saying that you meet everybody two times in the in your life once when you go uphill and the other time when you go downhill if you treat people badly when you go uphill it will sure come to you when you are going downhill and you need the, the support of others when you are going downhill and we all are i mean we just can't go up all the time there are good times and bad times and and this is i think the the fundamental principle that i've always been dealing with and and i think this this plays at least to my own um, conscious as well that I'm not doing uh, doing any harm to others
1: well this this tracks so beautifully with my research on givers and takers and why it's it's better to to climb in a way that elevates other people as opposed to trying to undermine them
3: no I, I I totally agree with you that uh, if you do things uh, not because uh, you are trying to see your own self-interest in everything I do, I will only help you because it will help me later on. you will just do this and it will or pay back in the end even if you don't know how it is uh, just take the opportunities, always give a good word if you have the good word to give so if you give uh, if you give uh, from your candle uh, your flame your flame is still still there i mean your candle is still lit i think this is uh, this is a very very good prin- principle i mean if you you know, give a good word or do something positive, then, uh, you know, you get the positive feeling for this as well, even if you don't, you know, see anything tangible out of this. And the other person uh, does as well. And maybe he or she will go uh, and and give this to others. And um, today, uh, one of my friends wrote to me that she saw uh, uh, one conductor, a very good Estonian conductor, Arva Bert, at the market. And so she went to her car and, And uh, sat down and thought that Kaya would have gone and said that I really admire her work. So she went back and said to him, thank you for your work.
1: That is such a lovely story. Kaya, you're reminding me of of some research that was published recently by Kakar and Stephen Nathan. They did eight studies, almost 150,000 people tracking what happens when leaders are, are obsessed with being dominant and asserting their authority. And it turns out that one of the side effects of being an aggressive and combative leader is that the people below you and around you stop helping each other, because you're sending a signal that success is a zero-sum game, right? And people think, okay, I have to be cutthroat, and I have to make sure other people fail if I want to succeed, and that undermines collaboration across every level if people are too competitive at the top. And I, I think about that a lot in workplaces, right? That if if we have leaders who are determined to you know, to to be in charge all the time and to give other people orders and to you know to to say, look, you you cannot get ahead uh, unless other people are falling behind. That makes it really difficult for people to work together and actually become more than the sum of their parts. This is, I think, a dynamic that exists on a much greater scale in your life, right? As as Prime Minister, you are a role model. And you set the tone, you know, not only in workplaces, right, but for the entire Estonian society around, is this a zero sum world? Can we help each other in ways that that actually make everyone better Uh, or must it be one one person for him or herself? Talk to me about that a little bit and, and how you think about being a role model.
3: Uh, well uh i don't think about this too often or actually i don't think about this at all I, i'm i am as i am and as as i've always been but yeah i i get this a lot uh, that uh, people write to me and the things that they say is that you're inspirational and i think um, uh, also i mean lifting people up so that they can do their work better. I mean, it's also about delegation, but it's also about trusting people. And sometimes it's very, very hard to, you know, delegate and really trust the people to do that work and not to take it uh, from him or her and, and just, I will, I will do this myself because eventually I will be responsible. I mean, when something goes wrong, it always comes to my level. And, and it would be so easy to say that he or she didn't do her or his job uh, correctly and, and I don't really mind but uh, but it is that I have to trust uh, trust them and if people feel that you trust them, uh, they also take the responsibility to do their work assignments uh, better because they see that you trust them. So I think trusting people to do their jobs and, and letting it go uh, also is is quite quite important.
1: You're articulating something that would be very high on my list of fundamental leadership principles, which is that weak leaders give blame and take credit and strong (laughs) leaders give trust and take responsibility
3: yeah absolutely agree with that. I absolutely agree with that. And it is also making the people want to work for you, not because you are you know somehow uh, pushing them but but uh, but it just somehow comes that they want to uh, do their best because uh, they see that you are doing this as well.
1: Well, that, that brings me to a very visible example of a leader who has not modeled the principles that you subscribe to, who you have had to deal with in, a, I think, a very difficult crisis over the past year, which is Vladimir Putin. I know you share a border with Russia. You've seen the threat coming for a long time, not just from the occupation, but all the way back to your mother, I think, was deported to so- Siberia by the Soviets when she was a baby. Is that right?
3: Mm-hmm. That is the story of, of my family, but not only my family, but many other families. So my mother was six months old baby when she was deported in a uh, cattle wagon for three ma- uh, three weeks was the journey uh, to Siberia uh, in together with uh, her mother and, and great uh, my great grandmother as well. And uh, they were there for, for 10 years. My uh, grandfather was sent to Rus- uh, Russian and Siberian Prison camp. Um, so this is uh, the story uh, behind the <laughs> Iron Curtain, and and this is not unique, but uh, story of many families. Uh, maybe my family story is uh, is um, with the positive ending because they came back and they all survived, uh, which was not for the fifth of our population. So.
1: I imagine that those experiences are are vivid in your mind when you think about how to deal with Russia today.
3: Uh, Absolutely. For our country, for our people, everything that we see in Ukraine right now uh, actually is like playing our history books happening all over again. The same things that happened, deportations, tortures, rape. Uh, killings all of it and and therefore we have never been naive towards uh, Russia uh, uh, and, and our history has taught us that very very painfully I am of the lucky generation that um, I remember when it was um, during the occupation I remember when we didn't have any freedom at all therefore I don't take freedom for granted people even you know, three years younger than me, they don't remember the Soviet times. So they are like all the other Western Europeans uh, taking the freedom for granted, but I think it's totally different approach. Uh, I'm of the lucky generation who didn't have anything and then everything was there. We can travel, we can choose, we can, you know, do whatever we like. Uh, Whereas the generation of my uh, grandmothers, is the generation that had it all and it was all taken from them. So we sort of feel um, in debt uh, to that generation.
1: That, that perspective, I think, helps to explain the strong stance you've taken. And I, I was watching this even before Russia invaded Ukraine. I saw you speak out against their human rights violations. I remember back in January of 2022, you made a commitment to sending defense weapons. And I think many countries were just beginning to consider the possibility of an invasion at that point. You were already making a, a meaningful promise. And I know that in the past year, you have been the world leader in military equipment sent to Ukraine as a portion of GDP. You've also spoken vocally against compromise and said we should not do that. So how do you think about leading through this crisis and what is it going to take to eventually get to peace?
3: I mean, it takes that Russia goes back to their borders and withdraws the troops. I think uh, this aggression cannot pay off because one thing that uh, uh, that i have you know start to think uh, during this war or t- understand is the definition of uh, of uh, of war and peace really uh, meaning that uh, if you ask any child it is very clear war is bad peace is good but there is also You know, differences between peace and peace, meaning that peace for your side of the Iron Curtain meant that you were building up your countries, your prosperity, uh, well-being of people, whereas peace on our side of the iron curtain meant the tortures killings pressuring down culture erasing our our culture our language all of it so so this is what will happen on the occupied territories and therefore it is extremely important to uh, see that you don't really negotiate with terrorists. Uh, You don't give in uh, to terrorists because uh, appeasement will only strengthen them. And, you know, there will be a pause maybe one year, two years, and everything will continue in a much broader scale. So in order to stop this, we have to be very, very firm that we are not giving in. And of course, it is up to Ukraine to say. But so far, what we can do is help them with military aid, with humanitarian aid, also political uh, aid in in keeping the international rules-based order together and also the pressure on Russia to really, really stop this war.
1: There's been a lot of discussion about off-ramps and the challenge of giving Putin a way to pull out while still saving face and protecting his ego and image. How do you think that will happen?
3: That will happen very easily. And why? Because Russia is not a democracy. Russia is not a free society. We can see that uh, Putin can, uh, you know, say anything or, or justify anything in his propaganda machine. So I'm not worrying about saving his face at all. I think, you know, he can go back to Russia and say that great success. Uh, Ukraine didn't invade Russia. Uh, we managed to defend our borders. And it will be a victory for him because the propaganda, all the uh, news is, is uh, dominated by him.
1: That's fascinating because I think it then suggests that this is actually not as difficult a task as many people have assumed.
3: Absolutely not. I've given a book called Dictator's Handbook to several leaders of of the world. And why? Because to understand how Putin thinks. The problem is that we see him through our democratic lens, uh, the way our world works. I mean, if I, as a leader of the country, would say that let's invade our neighboring country, then, you know, I would be voted down. I would have protests of uh, soldiers' mothers on the streets. Whereas, It is not the democracy there. Uh, The only thing he worries about is cronies around him happy, army, police, all the power structures happy, and he's in power uh, because everything is under his control. So we have to see it through his lens. And therefore, I'm not worrying uh, about uh, his face at all.
1: That means then you're looking at a different set of levers for persuasion that you want to get through to some of the the key military personnel that you want to get through to some of the oligarchs. And it seems like some of that progress has already happened.
3: Exactly, exactly. Uh, there are uh, several levels of it. Uh, one is, uh, of course, the sanctions that hurt the oligarchs and, and the cronies around. Uh, so they can't travel to Europe and, and all these uh, these worries that they have. Uh, and the other side is also nudging uh, the... Uh, you know, special tribunal to be made. I've read now about different tribunals and and the worry is that the war crimes can be prosecuted by the ICC, the International uh, Criminal Court, uh, and uh, Ukraine, because they are uh, committed on their territory. But the Crimes of aggression, which means that genocide and and also the decisions about you know attacking another country, they can be only prosecuted by a separate tribunal. And why this is important is to give out the signal that you will be responsible. Like in Nuremberg trial, uh, like in Tokyo trial, there was never a Moscow trial to widely condemn all the communist crimes of the past. If there is not the tribunal- know a legal response right now, then this will all continue again. and there will not be a lesson for uh, the history of of Russia, really, that they did something wrong.
1: I guess in in psychology, we would we would call that activating consideration of future consequences
3: exactly. And,
1: and what you're suggesting then is that you can take examples either from you know, Russian history or from other countries to to convince people, hey, The future does not look as bright for you as you think it might if you continue on this path.
3: Exactly. And it is not Putin or somebody, but it's also you who are committing the crimes right now. It's also you that, uh, that are actively uh, putting uh, yourself into decisions or, or, or uh, implementing the decisions that mean a genocide, really. Uh, so you will be responsible like there were many people responsible in an trial. Not only one person who committed suicide, Hitler. But also the others. And there's a lesson for the Russians as well uh, that um, this will not be left without response.
1: Is that something you would say directly to Putin?
3: Absolutely. And uh, I understand that uh, that also, or at least I've talked to other leaders who talk to him directly, that they ha- are saying this, that you can't win this. Stop this now because it will have consequences also uh, for you. But it seems to me in poker terms, he's all in, actually. Uh, he doesn't have uh, any, any way to back down. The thing from the dictator's handbook again is that when the crow, Cronies around him see that okay, with this guy we are all going down. Uh, but uh, usually, and it is also the case for Putin, uh, he has eliminated all the alternatives. Uh, so, so the cronies are looking like okay, with this guy we go down. But is there somebody else that we can, you know, uh, turn to? And and of course, that is a very difficult question.
2: Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run
0: On Working Smarter, hear practical discussions about what AI can do so that you can work smarter too. Listen to Working Smarter on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or visit workingsmarter.ai.
1: I think it might be time for our lightning round. Are you up for it?
3: Uh, Okay, try, (laughs) let's try.
1: (laughs) So I guess the first question I'd love to ask is what is the worst piece of leadership advice you've ever received? (sighs)
3: Be manly. Be like a man. (laughs) And that that was quite funny at first. But, uh, you know, I'm not a man. That doesn't mean that I'm worse. (laughs) But I'm just not a man.
1: We're going to talk more about that in a few minutes. Stay tuned. Is there a favorite piece of advice that you've gotten, maybe in the early days when you were first stepping into office?
3: This is what I already talked about, the respect part, that, uh, you know, respect all the people uh, no matter what uh, they do. I think this is important. And one more, don't do anything for money, actually. (laughs) So if you are making a decision because they offer you a lot of uh, money for this, but uh, you are not really sure, then don't decide over money because uh, decisions made for money are always wrong decisions.
1: Excellent. Who are your leadership role models?
3: I don't really have, uh, you know, somebody that I can point out because I like to, you know, take bits and pieces from uh, from different parts. From some leaders, I really like their speeches. Other leaders, I like how they are politically really playing the ground. So can't really point out any specific leader.
1: Is there one in particular that you've admired for a specific skill?
3: Um... I have admired uh, of course Zelensky, also a specific skill which is communication and and very very straight and and good uh, you know uh, messages.
1: You've had a chance to see Zelensky behind the scenes working with him up close. What have you learned about effective communication from from being backstage that the rest of the world doesn't see?
3: We can all see that uh, Ukraine is definitely winning on the, on the information <laughs> war side because uh, they have been communicating all the time, not hiding behind uh, talking about very difficult questions and, and giving information all the time, like every day and really with a very simple, you know, simple sentences. <laughs> because in times of crisis, people need a very simple, very straight talk.
1: You said at the very beginning that, that a leader is not an actor, but watching Zelensky has made me rethink that a little bit and made me wonder if at least leaders should take an acting class or an improv comedy class to, to learn how to better convey their, their authentic emotions and, and ideas. Do you think that's, that's worthwhile? Is that something you would recommend to other leaders?
3: I don't think Zelensky plays anybody else. This is, I mean, why I say that we are not actors is that if you try to play somebody else, uh, then that you are actually not, then it will come out eventually. Zelensky is, uh, is the same person uh, as he is behind the scenes. Uh, for him, I think what is the positive side is actually the shows that they had uh, and really entertainment business, uh, understanding how to reach people. Uh, how to make them, uh, you know, listen, how to make their uh, or get their attention. I mean, in in nowadays world, this is the crucial point, how to get the attention of people.
1: Kaya, one of my favorite things about you is that you're a fan of, of behavioral science. I know you do a lot of reading and also a lot of podcast listening. So what do you read and listen to?
3: Right now, I don't have that much time, of course, uh, to to read that I had before. But uh, but I like uh, also some podcasts. I like Malcolm Gladwell's revisions history. I like Radio Lab. They have different uh, aspects uh, so that you can you can take uh, uh, and and of course your your podcasts are also very interesting to to listen. But nowadays, I've been reading more about. Uh, the Second World War, also Russia understanding all this behind and how to, you know, come out of it uh, in in terms of, you know, how to explain things better.
1: As as I've been watching your leadership over the past year, I've seen a lot of interesting phrases. In one article, you were called Europe's New Iron Lady. You know, that's obviously uh, a mixed bag, as as we can discuss. But I think, you know, many people would take that as a compliment, right? It's praising your fortitude, your strength, your conviction. What have you learned about leadership over the past year that you didn't know before?
3: I thought about this question. It is maybe not anything specifically new, but it is, uh, you know, uh, repeating the things that are actually already... N- new but putting it more into practice and and those are two things one is really listening uh, listening to others and here I mean that we have been very united and and what is uh, been a huge effort for all those 27 or countries in the European Union but also adding up our allies from other parts of the world like US Canada and we have been very aligned and this has, required effort. Because it turns out that, you know, we think that we know each other. We think that we know each other's history, but actually we don't know. And we have to listen to others to understand where they are coming from, what their public opinion is worried about to address those issues as well, because you, I mean, you can't just say that I'm right and you have to listen to me, but you have to address the worries that their societies have, and and also the understanding of how to approach things so that it will have a real effect. And the other lesson is uh, cooperation. I think. Uh, this, I can't emphasize this enough. I mean, together, we are strong. Alone, we are much, much weaker.
1: Let's talk about women in leadership. You are the first ever female prime minister of Estonia. It's very clear that you have faced a lot of gender bias over your career. And I know, you know, what this often looks like from what I see is, you know, a, a man in your shoes goes golfing every single Saturday, and nobody says a word about it. Whereas you take one week-long vacation and people start calling you weak. What has that been like?
3: as I said, you know, one of the worst advice uh, that I've gotten is that be more manly. Cut your hair, wear glasses, you know, wear trousers, don't wear the dresses, uh, speak with a lower voice. And I I have a feeling that, you know, people have this, like this, you know, this gingerbread form uh, that they want to press you uh, through uh, as a leader. And that's a man. I always say that, you know, Women are not better politicians than men or men better politicians than women. We just have different life experiences. So in order to have balanced decisions, we need both sides. But the journalists and, and also how, how uh, some parliamentarians are treating me is different. I mean, I have been asked five times for different uh, journalists. Have you cried as a prime minister? And I've always asked back that, have you ever asked this question from a man, a male prime minister? Uh, no, they haven't. I think we have to deal with this, but it's getting better because uh, now also people see that, OK, women can do this job as well. And, and, you know, it doesn't really matter.
1: It's frustrating to me that you know, in the... I mean, what year is this? What century is this, right? Yeah. That we're, like, we're, we're still relying on gender stereotypes and subjecting women to all these double standards. I think in the, the research on overcoming gender bias and leadership, there's a, a bit of a tension between, on the one hand, we need to change stereotypes of women right? And say that, you know, caring about others is, you know, is not weak. That's actually a source of strength as a leader. And we saw that through COVID, right? I think you and I talked a while back about some evidence that when women were heads of state or governors in in U.S. states, the COVID fatality rates were lower early in the pandemic. And part of that was because women tended to show more empathy, now, do I think that women are biologically inherently more empathetic than men? Not necessarily. Do I think that they've they've been taught to to communicate that way? Um, probably. But then this also raises the male side of the equation, which is that we need to teach men, in some cases, to be more womanly, right? In the sense that um, a male leader needs to show care and concern and exercise kindness and realize that that's not weakness. And I'm always worried that when we talk about double standards, we're asking women to change as opposed to asking men to change. So I'd love to hear your reactions to all this
3: this is very very interesting uh, regarding empathy actually I have been called that I'm I'm very cold and not uh, empathetic enough and and why this is because uh, when I'm I'm saying that we are not paying for this or uh, like the, you know we are not doing this then they say that oh uh, you should have more empathy they never say this to man I mean never never ever accused any previous prime minister of being not empathetic enough And when I am, actually, they, I mean, like... People are considering that because you are a woman, uh, that means you're soft. That means that you can't really say no to things because that's too manly again. So they're saying that uh, you are not decisive enough. Although if you look at the record, this is uh, not really true. I'm not afraid of decisions, but but it stucks with people as well. So how to fight this? I think uh, what you say, uh, sometimes uh, men need to be more womenly and try to take up some of the strengths but th- then again i say also that uh, of course we have our strengths so everybody has their strengths and uh, and we also have our weaknesses even if we work really really hard our weaknesses will always be our weaknesses but if we work with our strengths then you know we can be uh, you know number 1 and and again this is like why should anybody change maybe we should just you you know, work together and use the different strengths that, uh, that we have.
1: We obviously have a lot of work to do to, to change some of the systems that reinforce these stereotypes and that continue to discriminate against women. While we're working to fix the broken systems, what advice or guidance would you give to women who want to lead?
3: First is that uh, seek allies, uh, don't uh, fight alone. Uh, this is uh, the lesson from my past when I was a partner in a law firm and, and uh, we were um, going through or trying to um, agree on new uh, partnerships. Uh, percentages. There was the turnover target for me and my uh, shareholding, uh, and And for guys, uh, the turnover target was much smaller, but the shares were higher because I was the only woman. Uh, I asked that, uh, why is this? Uh, how does this math really work? And when my um, senior partner said that, but you're so young, I said the boys were as young as me when they got partners. Yeah, but you are a woman and you're first woman, so be Happy that you are a partner at all. Although I had all worked for this, and 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 all the turnover figures and and the rainmaking that I was doing in the law firm was showing that I'm, I mean, a very good lawyer. And then, uh, you know, the fight I took, I took totally alone with the senior partner, and said that if it remains like this, I will leave, and I did. And then all the, you know, the male partners said that, Kaya, why didn't you talk to us? I mean, we didn't want to let you go. We would have all supported you and say that, I mean, you have earned a bigger shareholding because you are a valuable, uh, valuable partner. And I think this is one lesson. And the other lesson, I think for especially women, because, uh, you know, children are still very much, uh, you know, the obligations of women. Uh, The other lesson is that that be open about your problems. When I was a member of European Parliament and I went to Brussels uh, with my two and a half year old son. Uh, so I was there totally alone. So um, they were inviting me and uh, to different meetings and things in the evenings. And I said that I just can't come. And I didn't explain why I can't come. And then one um, lady who really, we really needed to have a meeting and said that Why you can't come? And I said that, well, I have a two-year-old boy and and I have to take him from the kindergarten. and, And she was like... I have kids too. We can meet at the playground and we can do this meeting at the playground. And so we did. So that was such a relief that when you are open about your problems, then others have maybe same problems and you can find solutions. If you just keep it to yourself, there are no solutions coming.
1: That reminds me of some evidence that somewhere between 75 and 90% of all helping behavior in workplaces starts with just a simple request. Right. Me saying, here is my challenge or here is my problem. Mm -hmm. And if other people don't know, they can't offer solutions exactly exactly as you just described.
3: Exactly.
1: I'm curious to hear about whether you feel like an imposter as, you know, the first woman prime minister ever. And I know that imposter thoughts are more common in in settings where you're underrepresented or where nobody else looks like you. It's hard to imagine you feeling like an imposter because you project so much confidence and you speak with so much intellect and clarity. But are there moments of doubt? (laughs)
3: Uh, there are and you know it's funny when uh, when I started in politics but uh, but even before when I was a lawyer as well I read um uh, the book by sherry Sandberg lean in and there uh, she talks about the imposter syndrome and I was reading this and I was writing on the side of the book that that's me that's me with the exclamation mark and it was uh, somehow liberating to read this that so many women feel like this uh, so I haven't been cured from this (laughs) still totally.
1: I don't know if you want to be entirely cured, though. Well, I, I wrote and think again about some of the evidence from Basima Tufik showing that um, when people have these imposter thoughts, they actually sometimes prepare more and they take more time to help other people and learn from other people because they know they don't know everything. And yeah, I wonder if, if you consistently have this experience of, of thinking, oh, well, maybe I'm not as good as other people think I am. Does that maintain your motivation? And is that part of what makes you so good?
3: This is true that uh, you prepare more because you don't want others to find out that you don't really know about this yet. And you know what is funny? When I started in this job, uh, I have the parliamentary questions every Wednesday, two hours. I answer uh, questions in the parliament. And uh, um, there are questions from all, all. topics. And, And I said that what I'm the weakest is the foreign policy, that I really felt really weak. So I really prepared for this. And now I can't say that this is my weakness. It's not my weakness anymore because I've read so much about this. It's all about preparation and it is that you are not You are not going to any meeting or any, you know, speech without preparing and really being able to answer questions, even if you don't know everything. And I think the... Being humble about this, that there is so much out there in the world that you don't know. I think it's also quite refreshing. And, you know, being also curious about the world so that you want to know more. Not that, okay, I know it all. I'm the prime minister, so I know it all.
1: I love that you emphasize the word yet. Which, you know, reminds me so much of, of what Carol Dweck often says in her research on growth mindset that, you know, if imposter syndrome says, I don't know what I'm doing, and it's only a matter of time until everyone finds out. Growth mindset just adds, I don't know what I'm doing yet.
3: Yet. <laughs> and it's
1: only a matter of time until I figure it out.
3: I think this is the healthy attitude, and this is the only way to approach this, because otherwise, you know, it might also be so frightening that, uh, that it might, uh, you know, cause you panic. But if you are, okay, I don't know this, but I will find out, and I will, I will manage.
1: You mentioned curiosity and humility. Those are qualities that I've seen consistently in our interactions. You're so interested in, in finding out what other people know. So I'm going to give you a chance to do something I don't normally do, which is, do you have a question for me? Is there something that you want to know about organizational psychology that you haven't had time to ask lately?
3: Actually, I was wondering whether you have looked into the behavioral uh, or behaviors of of, uh, different countries in the COVID really. Why was it so that in some countries, you know, there were no rules and and people just followed and vaccinated and and, I mean, everything went smoothly. And in some other countries, governments were making so big efforts and and nothing really happened. Can we do anything with this? And I think uh, there There will be studies about this. Maybe there are already some. I have uh, heard about one, but that would be very fascinating. What makes people act, really?
1: I think the, the best research I've read so far on this is Michelle Gelfand and her colleagues. They study cultural tightness and looseness with tight cultures, you know, being much more rule bound, much more conformist, usually more collectivistic as well. Loose cultures, more individualistic, tend to be a little bit freer. And not surprisingly, they found that tighter cultures had lower mortality rates in the early days of the pandemic. But this is very much a double-edged sword because those tighter cultures also tend to innovate less um, and they, they don't grow as quickly. Um, and so I think there's a big question that's swirling in my mind around how do we get the benefits of both tightness and looseness? And, and how do we get cultures to flex where we temporarily tighten up in situations of danger and then loosen up when it's time to explore new ideas and possibilities?
3: That is fascinating. I've read about cultural maturedness, that some societies are culturally mature so that you don't really have to say what they have to do and some are, are not. But the question for me, what is interesting is that how you evolve from one to other. I mean, is it that, you know, you just say that this society is as it is or is there any way to nudge the matureness in this regard?
1: Oh, that's such a good question to ponder, because when you when we talk about a maturity, in psychology, it's called psychological reactance, right? When somebody tells you what to do, and you don't want your freedom to be threatened, and so you resist just because the person is, is giving you a command or a direction. And that is like dealing with a small child, right? Like, you can't tell me what to do, and... Pushing a country to mature, gosh, that's something we need to think more about. This has been so, so enlightening for me and also just great fun too. Kaya, thank you for taking the time to do it. And more importantly, thank you for the critical leadership that you've provided on the world stage in such a difficult time for all of us. Uh, you've been an inspiration for me.
3: Oh, thank you.
1: Kaya is one of my leadership role models. I look up to her. I admire her clarity of vision. I admire her candor and authenticity. I think of of all the ideas that stuck with me, and there are a lot. The idea of adding yet to the end of any sentence where you have self-doubt or you feel like an imposter. I don't know what I'm doing yet. I haven't figured it out yet. The other idea that just hit home for me is is the way that she captured the differences between givers and takers. I thought it was extremely powerful when she said, if you're pulling others down, it doesn't make you look taller. You're still small. And I think we want leaders to be tall. Right? We don't want to drag other people down. We want to grow ourselves. And that's ultimately what being a great leader is all about. Bad leaders stagnate. Good leaders are determined to grow, and great leaders grow the people around them, and in the process, grow themselves. Rethinking is hosted by me, Adam Grant, and produced by Ted with Cosmic Standard. Our team includes Colin Helms, Eliza Smith, Jacob Winnick, Asia Simpson, Samaya Adams, Michelle Quinn, Ben Ben Chang, Hannah Kingsley Ma, Julia Dickerson, and Whitney Pennington Rogers. This episode was produced and mixed by Cosmic Standard. Our fact checker is Paul Durbin, original music by Hans Dale Sue and Allison Layton Brown. I'll speak for myself, not Malcolm or the Radio Lab folks, but I know I always feel an extra amount of pressure when I'm working on a podcast episode, knowing there might be a prime minister listening. This has to be really clear and compelling.
3: Well, I don't want to put any pressure on you because <laughs> uh, because uh, yeah, we are regular people, and and uh, I think, I mean, for me at least, uh, in uh, in your work, you have uh, you know a lot of issues that you are dealing with.